policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. And today we are going to be discussing Trump voters. Who are they? What do they believe? And what do they want? And I'm joined by my colleague Emily Eakins, who is a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, where she also operates as our director of polling. We also have Robert Griffin, who is a senior policy analyst of progressive studies at the Center for American Progress. As always, you can send me questions by using the hashtag on Twitter and Facebook, Cato Connects. So Emily, please outline very briefly the Democracy Fund uh, Vote Study Group. What was the aim and what did we find? Yeah, what brought us together here today. So the Democracy Fund um, assembled an ideologically diverse group of about 20 academics, pollsters, and scholars to come together to field this very large survey of 8,000 Americans. And what's really exciting about this survey is that we surveyed them right after the 2016 election, but we also had responses to survey questions they had answered in 2012, the very same people. It's called a longitudinal survey. And we took this data and we wrote several reports to better understand the electorate in 2016, to look at Trump voters, Hillary Clinton voters, and understand you know, who they are and what they want. Um, so that's actually what brings us together today. And Rob, what was the focus of your research? So uh, for me in particular, and I co-authored this with Rui Tashara, um, what we wanted to look at was what motivated Trump voters. Um, and I think as a particular extra slice of that, what uh, motivated people who once upon a time voted for Barack Obama back in 2012 and then switched to Trump to try to really examine um, what were the pieces of his own campaign that really appealed to people. And I think, again, just the focus here was not on a single cause. I think sometimes... There's a very simple story that people like to tell about one thing being particularly important. We really wanted to use as wide a lens as possible to look at what was going on. And using that wide lens, uh, what do you think are the important findings? So I think some of it's not terribly surprising. For a while now in the media, we've seen sort of this debate between uh, whether Trump voters were motivated mainly by cultural anxieties or racial anxieties or by economic anxieties or even economic deprivation. Um, and again, that's a bit of a, it's a false dichotomy because it can certainly be both. And some of the findings of the report suggest that it is both. Um, but it's not surprising to find that both of these things were at play, that these motivated Trump voters uh, throughout both the general election, uh, sorry, the primary and the general election. And Emily, I saw that uh, in your research, you broke down Trump voters into five distinct groups. Uh, who, who, uh, what are these groups and who occupies, uh, who occupies them? Sure. Well, I think it would be useful to just take a step back and think about, um, you know, the question that I was going at, going into when I started this research. And part of it is that during the election, people were very surprised by the surprising rise of Donald Trump in the primaries and then him winning the election. And people have been looking for an explanation. And it's typically a single explanation that they're looking for to explain his rise, just like Rob said. Was it economics? Was it cultural anxieties? Was it this or that? And we've seen authoritarianism, collective narcissism, racism, uh, nativism, all these isms. Um, and like Rob said, sometimes it's not, it could be both, maybe it's one, maybe it's the other, but also maybe it's that for some and not for others. And maybe different motivations brought people to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. So um, I did something called a cluster analysis of Trump voters to try to identify if there were different types of voters that came to vote for him or if they were all very similar. And I actually found that there were five different types of Trump voters. Um, the first are the American preservationists. They tend to be more economically um, progressive, but are a bit more, or actually a lot more suspicious of immigration. The other group was a staunch conservative group, and they're very conventional, like socially, economic, 
uh, social and economic conservatives, but were also fairly suspicious of immigration. Um, a very different type of group, though, that came to vote for Trump were the free marketeers. Um, and they are, you know, very, you know, free market friendly, free mar market oriented, but on immigration were fairly moderate and had very similar views to Democrats in their attitudes towards immigrants and racial minorities. Um, and similarly, for another Trump group, which I call the anti-elites, they felt like the system was rigged against them. But they also had fa fairly moderate views on immigration and favorable views towards racial minorities um, and immigrants. And so what we're seeing here is that there doesn't seem to be like one explanation, one reason that all the voter, all these Trump voters came to vote for him. Some of them voted for him, it seems like, for different reasons. Some really liked Trump himself, and some really didn't like Hillary Clinton, and some for other reasons. And I think that it provides a more nuanced picture of what led to the 2016 election outcome. So turning to, to you, Rob, I, I noted in, in your report, you wrote, those who held views of immigrants, Muslims, minorities, and feminist women as the undeserving other were particularly susceptible to Trump's appeal in both the primaries and the general election. Uh, and and there was certainly you know, rhetoric during the uh, election that that spoke to all those points. Uh, what but what role do you think uh, the kind of economic anxiety we've briefly mentioned uh, played as well? So um, I think you're talking about something that probably played less of a role in his primary win, at least according to the analysis that we've done, and much more of a role in his general election win. That is to say that we didn't really see that much of a correlation between some of these economic anxiety indicators and him winning in the primary. Um, suggesting perhaps that there was a, a big difference between sort of early Trump supporters and late Trump supporters, that these are potentially two different groups. Um, and this is something that's outlined in uh, some of our other authors' papers, uh, people like John Sides who wrote a piece. Um, but you had, uh, for the most part, sort of some indicators that uh, really jumped off the page during the general election that didn't during the primary. Uh, a, a question occurred to me while, while discussing, while reading both your papers, which is, uh, was Trumpism invented or discovered? Is it that uh, there was mm. uh, a population out there that was ripe for the kind of messaging that Trump came uh, across, or was it that Trump thought, this is something I could sell? So I think there's a bit of yes and there. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, um, we do have uh, views that align with Trumpism, whether we want to say that's cultural anxieties, negative feeling towards immigrants, negative feelings towards Muslims, um, that pre-existed in the population, even going back again, just to talk about our methodology a little bit, back to 2012, when we have these people's answers. Mm -hmm. Now, what we also know is that, at least from our study, is that the people who grew more negative over time, that is to say, let's say you gave a negative answer back in 2012. How likely were you to give a negative answer in 2016? If you gave an answer that was either neutral or maybe somewhat positive towards these groups back in 2012, how likely were you to change your answer to a negative answer in 2016? And the answer to both those questions is that people who had negative perceptions of the economy nationally and people who had negative perceptions of their potentially their own trajectory, like how well am I doing, these are the people that were likeliest to sort of turn anti-immigrant, to become, uh, to have a harsher view of Muslims over this time period. So again, part of it tapping into what already existed and some of it potentially activating it within the electorate, turning people sort of switching a little bit over this period of time. Um, and that's moderated by some of these sort of economic perceptions. I just think that that was a very interesting finding, that there's this interactive effect, it appears, for some voters, again, not all of them, yeah. but for some voters, that those who are very concerned about their financial well-being, that 
concerns about um, immigration seem to have an interactive effect between the two of those. Um, and I think that that has been an underlooked or undervalued aspect of this campaign or this look, you know, uh, analysis of this election. So I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, one of the parts of your study that, that stood out to me was uh, when you wrote that evidence in uh, your analysis provides some indication that concerns about immigration may arise for different reasons. So uh, throughout the campaign, there was commentary not just about the threat of uh, radical Islamic terrorism, but also the impact that migration, particularly from Central and Latin America, has. Uh, does, does your uh, study or analysis bring out uh, what group of immigration concerns were the mo most powerful, whether Central American uh, or the threat of Islamic terrorism? Well, I think that this question is a very important question. A, a lot of studies I've seen coming out to describe the election will often talk about how immigration anxieties was, um, you know, played an important or distinctive role in explaining people's vote choice in 2016. Now, the problem with that is that the analysis often stops right there. What does that mean? In immigration anxieties, immigration concerns. It often is this implication that it is only kind of driven by some sort of kind of xenophobic or, or, or racist tendency. For some, that is true. There appears to be data that suggests that that is true. But for others, it seems like there could be other reasons. There's concerns about the rule of law um, and, and you know, basic fairness when it comes to legal or illegal immigration for some. Um, we also see concerns about um, a feeling of belongingness. Um, some Americans are concerned that society is changing in such a way that we're kind of becoming separated and, and we're all in these little groups and we don't kind of share kind of common traditions. And then another, another dimension of this is security concerns, where it seems like some people are concerned not about immigration across the board, but they're concerned about um, certain immigrant populations that they believe might be more likely to commit violent crimes. Um, and so, you know, what evidence do we have for this? Well, part of it is we have some of, we had five Trump groups that I had identified. And, um, you know, one of these groups, or actually most four of the five groups, had very positive views about immigrants more generally, um, but they were very concerned about the, um, or they were very supportive or somewhat supportive of the temporary ban on Muslim immigration to the United States. Um, one of the groups had very negative, had more negative views of racial minorities, but that was one of the five, whereas four of the five were very concerned about um, you know, Muslim immigration, which gives some indication that there are different motivations underlying why people are concerned about immigration more generally. And if I could just add on to that, too, um, just to reemphasize the point, in the same way that there's not a single story that explains why an election went one way or the other, there's not a single story that explains why a single person does what they do. These motivations are often tied up in one another. There is a big draw, and I think it's something that we like to think that, oh, people do stuff because of this reason. But that's – it's just not what we know about people, that there's mo usually multiple causes. And that's a messier story and it sounds a little bit muddier, but it's much closer to the truth. And I think it's something uh, that a lot of the authors tried to flesh out in their studies. And something that uh – you mentioned in the report is the the way that uh, Trump perhaps fits in, in the history of populism in the United States. Uh, and uh, it, it prompted me to, to ask what uh, what is new about uh, Trump's version of this kind of populism? Uh, what are its unique selling points? Or is this just the latest iteration of something that has been with us before in this country's history? Yeah, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of old in Trump in the sense that um, uh, I, mean, I mean, just to place sort of even this election in context, it's coming eight years uh, after an economic uh, decline in the United States, right? We had the Great Recession. 
Uh, and it is very um, rare that we have you see an economic decline and don't see an anti-immigrant movement at the same time. And many anti-immigrant movements are precipitated also by economic declines. It kind of works both ways. They're tied together. Um, people often are looking for someone to blame when things go worse in their life. Um, so that part about Trump is not new. Um, I think what would be newer about him uh, would be a lot of the norm violation. We, that's something that we haven't seen uh, probably in a long time in the United States history. And again, this tends to happen more around tumultuous periods of times, the Great Depression, the Civil War, right, where you start to see people violating a lot of the longstanding norms in American politics. Um, but so that part is perhaps a little bit more unique, but not without historical precedent. I'd like to add a little bit to that as well. Um, I think that what we also see in addition to that is there are some um, kind of time-specific events that I think were very relevant to this election, and that was um, fear about terrorism and the rise of ISIS. Um, if, you, if, you know, if we look at the five Trump groups that I had identified, I find that immigration anxieties put generally predicts membership in two of the five. However, support for the temporary travel ban or temporary ban on Muslim immigration to the U.S. predicted membership in four of the five groups, which is more than two of the five. Um, and if you look at polls, when Trump started to do better in the polls, it was right after the Paris attacks. He got a little bump after Orlando and the San Bernardino shooting. Um, people were afraid and concerned. Um, and although many people were disturbed by some of the the way he reacted to these to these events uh, many voters felt like he cared about their security um, and that he put their security first and so I think that also played a role in addition to these economic concerns that I think also are very important before I go on to my next question I'd like to remind the audience that you too can ask uh, Emily and Rob a question by taking to social media and using the hashtag Cato connects uh, so I had a question, Emily, about all of these five groups. I remember in the wake of the election, there was discussions about uh, how enthusiastic uh, Trump supporters actually are. And by your measure, how many of uh, the people who did vote for Trump pinched their noses while they did it? Uh, you seem to have identified uh, a group that would be particularly uh, uh, mm -hmm. enthusiastic about Trump, but how many of them did uh, walk into the uh, polling booth with a sense of dread? Well, so I would so the free marketeer group they were the most hesitant Trump group. They comprise about 25% or so of the coalition. Um, and you know, most of them voted for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio in the primaries. Um, he was kind of uh, you know, not their favorite choice. And 52% of them said that their vote was a vote against Hillary Clinton rather than a vote for Trump. The anti-elites as well, they make up about 19% of the coalition. And they too, about half and half, said that their vote was against um, Hillary Clinton rather than for Trump. Um, so we actually see that of the five groups, um, t you know, two of them were very, you know, enthusiastic supporters of Trump. Two were not enthusiastic supporters of Trump. And then that fifth group, they're just about 5%. These are the people who didn't really share much about their politics, but they seem to map on with Trump in terms of their concerns about immigration and distrust of elites. Um, so I would say it was kind of split maybe 50-50. Um, but if you look at the early primaries, Trump only got about a third of the early primary votes. A majority of Republican primary voters voted for somebody other than Trump. But when you had 16 candidates in the race, you know, tr uh, Cruz and Rubio split each other's votes, you know, uh, 
Carson and Huckabee split votes, Bush, and I'm forgetting who was splitting, but they were splitting votes with each other. Whereas Trump, he actually took a fairly unique position compared to the other Republicans. There was really no one sharing his votes with him. Um, and so with that plurality, you know, he kind of kept going on in, in, in the polls. And as the other Republicans dropped out, you know, he was still standing. You know, and not to plug it too early, um, but this project is something that's ongoing. As I say, we're going to continue to follow these people forward in time. So uh, since the election, we've seen Trump's, uh, Trump's poll numbers drop off. And if you take a really close look at them, these, especially the people who strongly support Trump, have really started to shift towards over just approving of him. Um, one of the things I'm kind of excited about as we go forward is to see how that lines up with some of the typologies that Emily's created. Yeah, I had a question, uh, Rob, about uh, another big name from the election, uh, or at least the the run-up to the election, which was Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, ran uh, a uh, very uh, in, uh, energetic campaign uh, that also relied on, some might say, a bit of populism. Uh, mm-hmm. And from, from your analysis, uh, how many of uh, the uh, Trump, uh, the Trump voters were former Bernie Sanders supporters? How many uh, people who were of the traditional left actually went Republican this time? You know, so this isn't something that we looked at in our paper, but I know that Lee Drutman did look at this a little bit. I don't think it was a very high percentage. I don't think there was a tremendous crossover between Trump and Bernie Sanders. That was something that during the campaign uh, that there was, it was kind of talked about, and I think Trump made one or two appeals in there. Um, to try to get to these voters. But I don't think it's something that really happened on Election Day. Um, These are people probably who mostly went third party um, if they didn't actually come back to the Democratic coalition. Yes, but it does seem, uh, you know, we we didn't look at this empirically in our papers, but it does seem that, um, you know, his candidacy may have hurt Hillary Clinton um, in that a lot of her, the voters that we would have expected to turn out for her just didn't turn out for her, um, either voting third party or not voting for her. So, for instance, in the state of Wisconsin, a lot of people are saying, isn't it just so surprising that a Republican, Donald Trump, won the state of Wisconsin? But if you look at the actual raw vote totals, mm-hmm. Trump didn't get more votes than Romney. It's that Hillary Clinton got a lot fewer votes than Barack Obama which suggests that there was something going on. We actually need to be looking at this more, I think, in our next set of papers is, you know, what was happening with the Democratic coalition. Um, and was that just a blip? And, and next time around, you know, the Democratic Party will kind of come back together in Wisconsin. So uh, during during uh, your research, have you, uh, and this is a question for both of you, have either of you found uh, persistent myths among the left or the right about the rise of Trump or his popularity? Are there, uh, is there anything that people on the left or the right get wrong? about why he won the election? I think the biggest thing is trade policy, that this had some substantial role, like him sort of taking a stand on this, uh, him protecting workers at home, I guess, as the narrative goes, uh, that uh, that really sort of propelled uh, him to success, particularly in the Midwest, areas that have been hit hard economically as we've had sort of manufacturing decline. Um, but really, we didn't find much of a relationship between uh, people's opinions about trade and their vote choice. It just wasn't something that appeared to to have that much of an effect on people's vote. Emily? Um, I agree. I thought that was really interesting and surprising. I would say that um, it's maybe more about emphasis. Um, I think that there's been a lot of emphasis placed on the role of race. And while I, I've seen empirical data in the data that I have myself analyzed that says that for some Trump voters that played a role, it was really, it's the story about immigration that I think is really what explains a broader swath of, of voting decisions in this election. But that being said, what do, you know? What are immigration concerns really about? And I think even then, 
that there are different reasons and maybe multiple reasons at the same time that mm -hmm. bring people to that, you know, to, to, to be concerned about immigration more generally. So in the last uh, 10 minutes, I think it might be worth asking what uh, what Trump's election means for American politics. And I, w I was motivated to ask this question because, uh, Robin, in your introduction, you wrote that Trump's ascendancy suggests that the ground has shifted under our feet and portends seismic changes to a political order that we ignore at our peril. Uh, what is this? Uh, what are these potential seismic changes? So. I think, I think the biggest thing is just sort of thinking through what it means demographically, because that's a lot of times where I come from. So one of the biggest things uh, that we saw was a shift among white voters along the lines of education. We saw a shift towards the Democratic Party among white college voters, and we saw a shift away from the Democratic Party and towards the Republican Party among white non-college voters. Um, and if you believe the exit polls, and there's some reasons to not trust them, but let's just take them as a baseline, um, these are both double-digit shifts that's just too big a story to ignore. I mean, there's some tendency sometimes where people see minor shifts, right, where it just looks like, well, it went, you know, just a little bit down from Barack Obama's margin back in 2012 or something like that. It was still the national margin that Hillary Clinton won by. So it's not that big a shift. But sort of underneath that are coalitions that are shifting around pretty significantly. And that's going to mean, um, I think, pretty, and I think it's hard to actually think about in some ways. It's more why I got that sentence and they're like, we need to be thinking about this. But what a demographic shift like that means for even the party coalitions going forward, um, how they start to think about themselves and form themselves um, going forward in the future. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting trend. In the 1990s, the Republican Party was the party of college-educated voters. Yeah. And that has now shifted. Now the Democratic Party has more college-educated voters than the Republican Party. I mean, it still remains unclear, I think, what are the implications of those shifts, but it's, it is a shift that is likely to have an impact going forward. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a, question from, a question from Twitter by someone who refers to himself only as Uncle Sugar. So thank you, Uncle Sugar. Uh, uh, the, the question I think probably goes uh, mostly to you, Emily, which is, uh, do Trump voters love big government? So I guess a way to, to rephrase it is, uh, of, of the, the group that, of voters that you've identified, uh, are they uh, limited government folk or where do they stand on that? That's a really good question. So with the typology that I created, I found that they disagree that these five Trump groups disagreed considerably on economic issues and the size and scope of government, generally speaking. Um, the larger slices of the Trump pie still endorse the kind of the, the rhetoric of smaller government, um, lower, uh, you know, kind of less economic intervention. They didn't want to raise taxes on the wealthy. They don't think government has responsibility to guarantee health insurance and things like that. However, one group in particular that was very interesting, they were the American preservationists that comprised about 20% of the coalition. They were Trump's core constituency. They are those who catapulted him through the Republican primaries. They hold in many ways, kind of non-traditional views for the Republican Party. They want to raise taxes on the wealthy. They think the income distribution is unfair. They think that political elites have rigged the system against them. Um, almost half of working age preservationists are on Medicaid, so clearly, you know, reforms to, to the healthcare system is going to matter a lot to them. Um, and, th and they don't take those traditional positions. So. They are the minority of the Trump coalition, but they are a part of it. And as a result, I think that as Republicans um, on Capitol Hill gov try to govern and pass various reforms in health care, tax reform, or even think about entitlements, that that's going to present some challenges for them. 
I'd like to ask both of you where you think uh, Trump voters will be in, in the coming years. Do, do we get the sense looking at popular uh, approval data uh, that's been coming out that they're particularly loyal? Uh, and uh, I, I'm not aware, even if the data exists for this, but it, it's occurred to me that uh, some of them might be doubling down on their enthusiasm and some of them perhaps are not as happy as they thought they would be. So I think to the extent that, um, so one of the important things you can do is break this down by party, right? We get these approval numbers that come out, but it's important to sort of pick it apart and say how much of his coalition has he kept together and how many people um, are actually defecting. Among Republicans, he's still fairly popular. Uh, again, uh, recent numbers are going to vary, but something in the high 80s, low 90s is pretty reasonable to say uh, his approval ratings among Republicans. Uh, really where you're seeing declines are among independents and that last bastion of sort of Democrats who maybe supported, uh, gave him a chance right at the beginning with mm -hmm. a little bit of a honeymoon period. These are the people really starting to drop out. Now, the good news there for Trump is that there's probably a hard bottom uh, in terms of uh, how low his support can go, right? That there's sort of a concrete floor in there somewhere um, given how, uh, how strongly partisan affiliation uh, sort of shapes people's views, that these people are going to stick with him through uh, through sort of even the worst situation. Um, but all these other groups are probably going to, uh, to sort of slide away from him if he continues to sort of have the sort of presidency that he has so far, um, one that's marked by scandal and for the most part incompetence. Yes, um, I mean, and, and we, we, we looked at the, the, the voters who had switched from Obama to Trump in this election, and I think that there's a lot of interest to know, are they going to stay? Are they going to stay voting Republican or are they going to go back to the Democratic Party? And I think that that remains to be seen. What do you mm. think, Rob? Do you think that when we see some declines, to what extent will those be among the switchers? So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the switchers because these are people who have already shown themselves to have um, a big a bit of a tendency to flip between uh, two parties. Now, some of this is a long-term decline in sort of democratic identification among white non-college voters. This is something that's been happening uh, depending on where you want to put the pin, but at least since 2008. Um, so some of these people are probably not going to come back into the democratic coalition. Um, but uh, I think there's a, a, a pretty good majority that could come back, especially I think if the democratic party takes seriously the idea that they need a better economic message that speaks more directly to the concerns that people are having. Yeah, and uh, I suppose uh, uh, one of the concluding questions could be what, what are the lessons that the major political parties in this country take from this election? If, if you are uh, at the RNC or the DNC and you're looking at uh, both of your papers, should you uh, or would you come away with a, a sense of a need for a strategy change? Uh, what, what is the overriding political lesson from these reports? I would One thing that I would say is an important implication for um, office holders and political candidates, people looking to, you know, seeking office, is that I think one of the um, effects of this campaign is a lot of studies have come out really emphasizing, how, you know, the role of white identity politics, immigration, racism, things like that, and the role that, that, that those played um, in the election. And I think that there is a backfire effect that can occur in that it might give these office holders the idea that engaging in white identity politics will be rewarded. And I think the analysis that I've conducted shows that it most likely will not be rewarded because most Trump voters are not about white identity politics. They're not about racism. And trying to engage in those politics will not be rewarded at the ballot box. 
yes, there are some out there that do respond to that, but they're not the majority. And it would be unwise for political office seekers to think that that would be an effective political strategy. You know, and I would bring in um, a, another piece of data here. It was a study that Pew recently did. And what it did is sort of like us, it tracked people over time and it tried to keep uh, track of their partisan identification. That is to say, did people uh, continue to identify with the Democratic Party if they were Democrats or the Republican Party if they were Republicans? Uh, and what they found is that the, they had this massive um, uh, defection rate among young Republicans, Republicans 18 to 29 over this two year time period from 2015 to 2016, or sorry, 2015 to essentially now. Um, and it was something like 23% of 18 to 29 year old Republicans defected from the Republican Party and started to identify themselves as Democrats. Just to, uh, to, to add off of Emily's point, especially with white identity politics, this is not playing well among younger generations who have very different feelings about uh, these issues. So I think there's potentially even a short-term game that some, I think, uh, some of the Republican Party think they might be able to play with white identity politics. But the long-term game here really just shows um, that they're going to continue to lose millennials. And at this point, I don't know what to call them yet, but post-millennials, people born after the year 2000. Right. So other than uh, looking at uh, approval numbers, what other pieces of uh, uh, political data should we be keeping an eye on in the coming years to, to, to figure out how popular or how viable Trumpism is or how viable the presidency is? Are there any uh, elections or political earthquakes that we should keep an eye on? So, I mean, I, I guess one thing to keep an eye on if, if Trumpism is going to have a longer shelf life than Trump himself um, is whether you're seeing people primaried. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, there has to be a shift in who is actually running the Republican Party. Um, and a lot of people are, I think, right now willing to play ball with Trump, but they're not really uh, true, true believers. Um, and, and in fact, during the campaign, they probably had some of the harshest stuff to say about him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Emily, is it your, uh, your feeling that, that Trumpism uh, has the potential to be an ideology or is this a, uh, a, an, an idea that is attached um, too, uh, too strongly to one individual? You know, I'm of the view that um, a lot of these views were around before <laughs> and that Trump activated and excited a certain segment of voters on issues that they already tended to believe in and care about, um, but that were not really represented in the Republican Party before. But like I also mentioned, Trump didn't win a majority of the Republican primary votes in the early primaries, which is the time I would argue is the time to be looking at. When you had 16 options, you really had your flavor of Republican. What's your flavor? Trump was not the majority. So for those reasons, I would expect that this specific flavor of Trump that tends to be you know, more supportive of government intervention in the economy, but also more restrictive when it comes to immigration, globalization, and trade, um, while will continue to exist, will not necessarily exert kind of the majority force in the Republican Party going forward, but it could continue to have a legacy um, if people come to think that that is a winning strategy in the short term. But if you look at the data, that doesn't seem to be where those Republican Party voters are. Unless, like Rob said, unless those voters that care about those issues exit the party because they're annoyed about the you know, restrictions on immigration and globalization and trade. Um, so time will tell. And uh, looking back at the, the election in November, uh, I, I, a question that's uh, been occurring to me a couple of times is, did, did Trump win the election or did Clinton lose it? Uh, how much of the 
how much of this is a, a popularity of, of Trump and how much of it was a, a campaign that was run far from perfectly by Clinton? <laughs> so that's always a that's I mean I guess I, I, I guess they're really the same thing. I mean I know that people like to put it in that sort of cute fashion that somebody won it versus somebody lost it. Um, but I, I, I think it's it's sort of a bit of both. I mean what you ultimately saw was two of the most unpopular candidates in American history running in twenty sixteen. So that's fair. Okay, I might disagree a little bit here with Rob. Mm-hmm. So I, I do agree that you have two of the you know historically disliked candidates running for president at the same time. That is unusual, and so un- unusual things happen. But um, if you look at the vote totals in in each of the states, you look at the county level vote totals. And, and Rob, you know, you're the expert when it comes to you know geography. Um, but I'm sure you've seen this as well, that mm-hmm. in many places that people keep saying, like, look at Trump and how well he did in Wisconsin. Yes, he did flip some important counties in Pennsylvania and Michigan, I suppose. But in Wisconsin, that was not the story. In many other states that people have been pointing to as being pivotal, he didn't outperform Romney. It's that Hillary Clinton underperformed Obama. So my view is that Hillary Clinton lost this election rather than Trump winning the election. Um, And I think digging into that data will make it pretty clear. Um, And as a consequence, that in the next presidential election, perhaps when there's no incumbent on the ticket, but when there's two new Republican and Democratic candidates running for president, I think we'll see, um, I don't think we'll see the electoral map that we saw this time around. So we have a question coming in from Joseph Merritt, who asks, How does nationalism versus globalism affect the voters? Uh, And I suppose another way of framing that is uh, how much of uh, Trump's support came from a a skepticism of what's come to be called globalism and how much of it was motivated by uh, the kind of nationalism that we've heard so much about recently? Uh, I think it it depends on how much you view those as sort of, again, separate ideologies. I would not be surprised. This wasn't something we looked at particularly uh, in our own reports, but I wouldn't be too surprised to find those things running pretty hand in hand with one another. Um, And then again, there's just sort of the question of what even nationalism means, because often once we start talking about uh, nationalist tendencies, there's sometimes mixed into that as well a racial element where people have a racial and religious conception of what being American is and what it means to promote America first. Yeah, I don't know what more I can add to that other than I think it hooks into our earlier conversation that some of these attitudes, different reasons can motivate people to kind of reach those conclusions. And it's kind of unclear on their face, you know, exactly why someone is very concerned about that particular issue. And uh, a question for you, Emily, uh, how much of Trump's ascendancy during the primaries at least had to do with the the rather large uh, Republican field uh, that we saw. Uh, I think it was 16, 19. Uh, there was a, a large number of Republicans put forward. Uh, if if Trump had been running in a, let's call it a traditional Republican primary race, would the outcome perhaps have been different? I think it very likely could have been. It's always hard to say. You know, the counterfactuals, you know, impossible to prove. But this was, in so many ways, an unusual election. You know, two historically disliked ca- candidates, but also having 16 Republican Um, candidates in the primaries is very unusual. Um, There was an interesting survey put out recently um, 
or not recently, a few months ago, that looked at um, if you could vote for your second and third choice options, if your first choice in the primaries wasn't um, available anymore, who would you pick? And they kind of went down, the. It's is it called ranked order voting? Mm -hmm. And when they did that, they found that the election would have been Ted Cruz versus Donald Trump, and Ted Cruz would have won between the two of them. Now, who's to say that's actually accurate or not? Um, so I think in part the fact that we got such an unusual candidate who was disliked by kind of the Republican establishment is in part the fact that we had 16 candidates. But it's hard to say. This is a very unusual election. Yeah, and just to, if you think back to the primary history, I don't think he was getting above maybe a third or even 30 percent of the vote in any state uh, up until New York, roundabouts at then. Right. So, it, so it really wasn't until relatively late in the game that he was able, even able to get a majority of the vote in any single state. Um, my own opinion is if it was a smaller field, he probably would have been wiped out earlier. Right. Right. Well, thank you, Rob and Emily. I'm going to uh, wrap up a uh, today's uh, episode of uh, Cato Connects. A uh, reminder to our listeners that you can uh, find Emily and Rob's study at the Democracy, Sun Democracy Fund Voter Study Group, which I urge you all to do. Uh, all that remains is for me to thank uh, Rob and Emily for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks. having us.